Welcome to First Unitarian Society of Minneapolis, the birthplace of Congregational Humanism. We carry on that tradition of free thought today, dedicated to promoting a free search for truth, meaning, and justice. Our web address is firstunitarian.org. I'm David Breeden, Senior Minister. Welcome. The ancient Spartans trained all their lives for one thing, and that was warfare. The city-state of Sparta was one large military training camp, and the housing was military barracks. Children, male and female, were taken from their parents at birth. All citizens lived communally, the only family a Spartan had was all the other Spartans. They ate, slept, and trained perpetually for war. The Spartans had a temple that other Greek cities did not have, called the Temple of Fear. The Greek god of war was Ares, and he had two sons, Phobos and Demos, those gods were personifications of fear and panic. Phobos, fear, it's where we get our English word phobia. Inside the temple of Phobos was a statue of Ares, and that statue was hollow and filled with Machai, the spirits of battle. Now, my question is, why would a people who lived for nothing but war worship fear rather than courage? And I think the answer is that courage may or may not go with you into battle, but there's no doubt that fear will be with you. Now, last week I talked about a human propensity that appears to be hardwired into the ways that we think. We conceive of what we consider to be polar opposites, then we assign those opposites values, usually good and bad. And often this way of thinking creates artificial divisions, what I called schismogenesis last week. That is the creation of divisions, even when actually their distinctions without any difference at all. Us and them, for example. Buddhist philosophers have made good use of the human propensity to create polar opposites with the concept that they call near enemies. They have near enemies and far enemies. Hate and love, for example, are far enemies. They are polar oppositions. But what lies between? How many shades of love and hate do we feel? And what about compassion and hate? Is compassion totally outside the love-hate continuum? If so, why? If not, why not? Is love possible without compassion? Is compassion possible without love? Is compassion a near enemy or a far enemy of hate? Is compassion in any way oppositional to love? Is compassion a near friend to love? Where is the line between compassion and pity? And is pity a near enemy of hate? As you can see, the Buddhist way of parsing these things 
what appear to be natural opposites between good and bad become nuances, gray areas that need to be explored in order for us to understand our own values and emotions. They're not word games. They're not mere abstractions, because like it or not, we live in abstractions. I'm a good person, we say. Okay, what do you mean by that? Now, Socrates looked for these nuances as well. For example, he might ask if compassion is some different kind of love. What has come down to us, uh, it's known as the Socratic method, is about asking questions, not finding answers. It's about searching. Socrates was always asking people to define a word. Justice, honesty, wisdom, courage, those sorts of big things. And after close questioning, Socrates found that most people do not think enough about their abstractions. We leave our abstractions abstract in our own minds. Too often, we don't know what the words mean. In other words, if you don't know the destination, how are you planning to get there, Socrates would ask you. Just think of how we use that abstraction, democracy, without thinking about it. Socrates would say that not thinking too much about it is the problem. The Spartans had discovered that developing a close relationship with fear is more useful than embracing courage, which everyone considers a virtue, sure, but courage is a virtue that may or may not stick with you in fear and panic. Living with intention. I see that as a daily, even an hourly, or a constant practice for us. I see it as a disciplined questioning of what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. What I think I have learned is that for most of us, most of the time, we are living without intention. We are on autopilot. Autopilot is the far enemy of intention which I'll come back to in a moment. The cliche that has come down to us is that Socrates said, the unexamined life is not worth living. Now, the Greek word anextastos does mean unexamined, but it also means not searched out. And the Greek word biotos, which is our prefix bio as in biology, doesn't mean worth living, it is to be lived. So a more accurate translation of the phrase is the unsearched life is not to be lived. The phrase is not an invitation to be a snooty philosopher who depends upon abstract words. It's a warning. You are not living if you're not searching. And I would add that searching requires intention. And that's a program that I can sign on to. Now ask some of our vital FUS members who are over the age of 85, and they will tell you age and aging well is about keeping up the search. The unsearched life is not to be lived because if you're not searching, you're not living. The contrast is between mere life and being alive. 
Mere life is a close enemy. Being alive is the far friend. And along that path are emotions such as vitality, interest, engagement, purpose. You know, the ancients were deprived of many things that we today take for granted. One of those was zombie movies. The ancients never saw a zombie movie, if you can imagine that. So when they talked about this way of being on autopilot, they didn't have the zombie metaphor. That's what I would use. But they called it sleepwalking. And that's about as close as they could get without zombie movies. Socrates is reported to have said this famous line of his at his trial for corrupting the youth of Athens. He was facing the death penalty. The traditionalists, the conservatives of Athens, wanted people to go off and enjoy their unquestioning autopilot lives like good, obedient citizens. Socrates said, if that's the choice, I choose death. The unsearched life is not to be lived. Intentionality. What's the far enemy of intentional? Unintentional? I don't think so, because that's got too many connotations. Unthinking, inadvertent, inertia, habit. I call it autopilot. Life on autopilot. That's the far enemy of intentionality, I think. What are known as spiritual practices or methods of calling us back to our intention, back to the search? back to the closer examination of what we're doing, how we're doing it, and why the heck we're doing it. It's not about where you're going, it's about how you're going to get there. Intentionality is about that word we hear a lot nowadays, mindfulness. Intentionality is knowing that between the stimulus and the response is where your freedom is because you have a choice. Intentionality is about thinking and living outside that forest of cliches that we live in when we're living in habit and inertia. The point every day is to be searching, to learn how to live better than we lived yesterday. That's the practice. What's better? Well, less fear, less hatred, less selfishness. Better is more compassionate, more loving, more just. The Buddhist philosophers and Socrates can agree on this. The exercise, the practice, is to bring our core beliefs and assumptions to the fore, to question our ways of thinking, to pull assumptions out and look at them, then to live into the ones that we find to be virtuous and good, and therefore do our searching and find a life. Thanks for listening. You can find much more about humanism and what's happening at First Unitarian Society in Minneapolis by visiting our website at firstunitarian.org.